All right, praise God. Well, let's get started on this. If you remember a couple weeks before the end of the year, we talked about, introduced the concept of joy. It was one of the first concepts in this book, The Other Half of the Church. Um, the setup for the book, there's a guy named Michael Hendricks, who uh, it, it was a discipleship pastor at a mega church, and he was frustrated personally that his discipleship program and all the discipleship programs that he knew uh, worked for some people and didn't work for other people. Some people grew and other people it was just, they, it, it didn't make a character transformation or change. And it led him to, uh, you know, seek out why and, and look for other things. And he ended up running into a guy named Jim Wilder. And Jim Wilder uh, was introduced to him by another friend. And the guy said that, I want to introduce you to this guy who's a, a, a pastor and a teacher, but he's a, also a neurotheologian. A neuropsych- he's a neuropsychologist that has dug into the Bible about stuff in the brain. And so he kind of coined the phrase neurotheologian, which that makes sense. You know, I mean, I'm good with that. So anyway, um, the, 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 this is a little bit of a review before we jump into it because I didn't cover it in the slides tonight. The reason the book's called The Other Half of the Church, and it's got a picture of a brain on it, uh, there with a cross in the middle of it, it's a right, right brain, left brain deal. And this guy's, uh, psych, uh, neuropsychology professional experience helped him discover through various things, uh, the way information's processed through your brain and that it comes in, uh, near the base and the, Elements of your right brain, the intuitive part, process it faster, the emotional part, all that sort of stuff. And then your left brain analyzes it and begins to put it someplace and do something with it. And in a nutshell, what he's found is that the majority of ways that Western theology leads people to build a character transformation discipleship program is know the truth make good decisions, and then find the power through disciplines, spiritual disciplines, personal disciplines, or whatever. But the problem with those is they're all left-brain activities. And why that's a problem is is, uh, this Wilder guy started explaining to him the reason that this works for some people doesn't work for others is the way you process information. It's processed six times a second in your right brain, touching emotional issues, spiritual issues, things like fears, all this kind of stuff, all the kind of stuff that happens before you have a chance to think about it. Because the analytical side of your brain processes four times a second, and it can't even get to those until they're processed on this side. So what you've got to do is you've got to change how you subconsciously process and react to things, which, of course, sounds impossible because the very nature of it being subconscious makes it difficult. But uh, all hope is not lost, because uh, this Jim Wilder guy has done a bunch of research, and he's come up with four progressive categories that allow the transformation and change of your right brain reception of stuff that then can feed into the choices. And and they're not suggesting that knowing the truth or getting more truth or making good choices or 
having discipline doesn't isn't a part of it, but by itself it won't do it because you've already reacted. You've already displayed your character because your character is how you react before you have a chance to think about it. So you've already displayed your character before before your your uh, analytic side has a chance to take care of it. So the first one's what we looked at. It's it's joy, and the guy makes a really strong case that joy comes from the reaction to the delight in someone's eyes when they look at you. When you see it, it goes all the way back to childhood when when babies see their parents and all this kind of stuff. But but just when you walk in a room and somebody looks at you and you recognize delight, that is the foundation for a visceral reaction of joy. And it's a real reaction of joy. And you don't have to think about it. Uh, so if you're in, if you're in a place where most of your church fellowship is sitting behind somebody else in a pew looking at the back of their head, it's not going to be a joy-filled experience. Not because, and it's not, not that you might not be happy. It's not that you might not enjoy what you're doing or the music or anything else. But there's, there's something about us. Um, one other thing that, that Wilder says is he said, it, 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 it shouldn't be a surprise that to make internal growth, internal wholeness, internal character, that God designed our brains to be relational. Not, fu- not fundamentally analytic because we're together. So the four categories are joy that come from the face of God and delight. The second category is uh, deep attachment. And they've chosen to go back to the Hebrew word hesed about that. Hesed is uh, oftentimes translated loving kindness or uh, mercy, a deep love, something along those lines. Uh, that's the second. You need to be in a community where you know you're loved. You need to be in a community where you know you belong. You need to be in a community where you sense that your connection to the people is not conditional and is not fragile. It's not on the verge of falling apart. And then the third one is a we-shaped rather than an I-shaped identity, meaning that you, you see your identity <clears throat> as a part of other people. Not that you lose your individuality, but you can, you can, someone could say, or, or you could ask a question about reacting to a new circumstance by, what do my people do? How do my people see this? And again, community, family, it's a big, big deal. And the last one is that if you have those three things, if you have high joy levels, if you have a high sense of connectivity, connection, security, and if you have a we-shaped identity instead of a Lone Ranger kind of independent identity. And, and one of the problems with that Lone Ranger kind of independent identity is it almost forces you to work this, work the angle you have to stand outside the culture that you're a part of or the community you're a part of and figure out what everybody wants so you can do it. And, and you just can't be yourself if that's right. That's, you know, if you've ever heard Paul Young's testimony, he's never used those words, but I bet Paul would agree totally with this that a we-shaped identity is much, much better than an I-shaped identity. But if you have those three things, then you can accept feedback. Then you can be open because it's not a threat to your 
well-being or existence if somebody goes, you sure that was the way you wanted to act, you know? And so then, then the, uh, the left side of your brain, the analytical side, has this sense of belonging, this sense of security. So anyway, it's kind of a long reduction, but that's it. So we looked at the joy one the first time. I got super excited about it, and not just when I looked at it, but I'm still excited about it, because I think joy is incredibly, incredibly important. And um, so anyhow, hesed, or chesed, and agape is kind of the New Testament word that goes with it. Now, agape talks more about love and so on and so forth. I uh, created these little sheets. Just, I'm not really going to teach out of it or anything. I just wanted you to have access to it because it goes through uh, hesed and it goes through uh, how that gets linked up with stuff like other words like mercy and stuff. I thought it was interesting. And the primary thing I thought was interesting about it is how hard it is to define the word hesed. Uh, and, and so I've got some definitions, and I'm not going to go into a big, like, teaching kind of expose on the thing. But anyway, I did find this verse, though, in the message. And I thought it just spoke perfectly to the idea. Yeah, and they're just one, one page. If you are really wise, you'll think this over. It's time you appreciated God's deep love. I think that's a well-said way to put that. If you are really wise, you'll think this over. It's time you appreciated God's deep love. And we'll get into a couple other scriptures as to how that applied. But let's kind of work just through it sort of quickly, and then we'll get in a position where we can talk about it. So here is uh, the Strong's definition of chesed. Kindness. And by implications towards God, piety, rarely by opposition, reproof, or such. So anyway, you can you can look at that simple definition in Strong's and realize, okay, this, this word's not really nailed down <laughs> super solid. Um, there's places where it is used in a reproof about like, you know, you've rejected the love or whatever the case is. So that's Strong's. But there's a couple of the lexicons that I like. One's the Word Study Dictionary. And this gives a little fuller range of said. It's a masculine noun indicating kindness, loving kindness, mercy, goodness, faithfulness, love, acts of kindness. And th those are all words that are used in various translations, either to parallel said or actually as the translation for said. So, for instance, King James, uh, more often than not, uses uh, loving kindness and then sometimes mercy. But there's another word, and you can see that's in this study here, Emmett. There's another word for mercy that's paired with it a lot of times. And you can tell that translators struggle. This is at least how I feel you can, and who am I? I'm not an authority on it. But if a word consistently is translated as X, but then when it's with another word that really means X, they have to change the translation. So then it's not X anymore. It's Y, and that thing gets to be X. You know people are struggling to try to understand the translation, which is kind of why I respect Young's literal or the concordant translation, because they just don't even try to make it make sense. They just put it what the word says for the most part. But um, so, so said is really, it is really the love of God. But it's also, it carries with it the, the elements of that love, which is kindness and all this kind of stuff. Another thing that's in this little sheet is that, uh, one of the, one of the, 
elements that they talk about there is like marital love is a good example and used a lot of times in the overall picture of the love that is hesed love or hesed love in the Old Testament because there is a contractual or covenantal agreement in a marriage. But if, if, the, if, the, if the, the level of communication and trust and joy you find in that is only on the basis of the covenant, then that, that's missing something. And that's the part that almost where agape had to come in in the New Testament and both narrow and broaden the focus on Hesed on that kind of love. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But uh, this aspect of God is one of several important features in his character. Truth, faithfulness, mercy, steadfastness, justice, and righteousness, and goodness. And then, of course, the classic text for understanding the significance. And I wouldn't have written, this is their definition there in word study, I wouldn't have written the significance. I would have written the breadth. But understanding the significance of this word is in Psalm 136. And 26 times in there it's used that way. I'm not going to read the whole thing unless we want to, but here's the first nine verses. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Loving kindness is what's translated there for the word has said. Okay? So give thanks to the God of gods for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, his loving kindness is everlasting. So here's what I saw and the reason that I wanted to bring up at least some of Psalm 136. We might do some other parts of it too. When you're talking about, okay, let me put it another way. We have people in our lives, Vicki and I have people in our lives, and you guys have probably run into folks like this too, that when you talk about the love of God, they go, yeah, but God is love, but he's also justice. Or God is love, but he's also judgment. Or God is love, but he's also holiness. Yeah, he is all that. But he isn't that at the expense of love. Give thanks to the Lord his loving kindness. Give thanks to God, the Lord of lords, to him alone who does great wonders. Is God a miracle worker? Absolutely. Out of his loving kindness. Loving kindness, has said love, agape love, is the context from which wrath flows, judgment comes. Even if God has to be silent for a moment, he's not doing it to withdraw love. He's doing it out of love to say something that you can't hear because you're not listening when he's talking. I don't, you know. And so we got to hold those things lightly and don't let them be pitted against that. This is what I thought this kind of did well. Uh, to him who made the heavens with great skill, is God a creator? Yeah. Did he create out of hesed love? Out of, out of everlasting love? Yes, yes. If you look closely, we, we did a little thing several months ago about uh, the Spirit's role in various things and in creation, one of the beautiful things that emerged out of that conversation was that God created things so that men could have fellowship with Him in them. They weren't weird. They weren't designed so people didn't fit there. They weren't designed so that you were constantly on the edge of starvation or, or that you could barely breathe because the atmosphere wasn't right. You know what I'm saying? Now, it sounds... Stupid to even suggest it could have been the other way, but of course it could have been the other way. It was made for fellowship. It was made for a, a, a dynamic, comfortable relationship. And that says something about who God is in his heart. It comes out of loving kindness. To him who made the great lights, same thing for his loving kindness. Later in uh, 
other verses down here, it says, to him who slayed our enemies, his loving kindness is everlasting. To the king of Abed, his, you know, I mean, just all this stuff. Even the war, even the protection, even all this kind of stuff. There's another place in Scripture that I didn't put up here that caught my attention only because it had caught my attention before. Uh, Jeremiah 31 uh, is the place that talks about his loving kindness. And it, it has to do with the restoration of the people after the exile to Babylon when they come back. That even while that judgment was irreversible, and we had talked about this some, while that judgment was irreversible, it was a judgment that did not step outside of or, or divorce itself from his love and kindness, his said love. I will bring them back. I will. They will be restored, that kind of stuff. So, anyway, does that make sense? Okay, all right. So here comes agape. Strong's definition of uh, agape is uh, love, affection, benevolence, and it also means a love feast. It's, it was used that way. You guys uh, probably know this, but I'll just mention it in passing. Agape is a unusual word in Greek literature, and it actually gained a lot more specific meaning, especially spiritual meaning, in the Christian writing than it was ever in the other part. It was used every now and then for love, but there was a big preoccupation with other kinds of love, uh, eros love and phileo love and so on. Agape was there, but it was very ill-defined in Greek literature. But when it came into the Christian the Christian writers, the Holy Spirit inspired them to grab this word agape and apply it to the love of God. And unfortunately, in my opinion, I think it's unfortunate, because a lot of our theological analysis comes through word studies and stuff which I love to do, agape sometimes falls victim to that. And you can be looking at the love of God's heart being written about by the apostles or in Scripture or spoken about by Jesus and completely miss the point because you're trying to analyze agape and then you get all confused when the Pharisees agape the praise of men. <laughs> you know, well, what is that? <laughs> you know, which that, it does what it says. Uh, so anyway, uh, but this will start to build and I've got a couple other lexicons here. So that's Strong's to love. Uh, this is the BDAG. Uh, I don't remember the name of it. Uh, it's, it's my favorite one because it breaks out definitions. So agape, the number one definition, and listen to this because this I like a lot more. The quality of warm regard for and interest in another. Esteem, affection, regard, love. And then they made the point that it's not like going back into the, the Greek um, Phileo words and stuff. It's not dependent upon just sexual love or anything like that. It, uh, it's very seldom used in that. And then agapeo, which that agape comes from, is to have warm regard for and interest in another, to cherish and to have affection for and to love. So one of the things, one of the reasons I like this definition, and I'm thrilled that such a significant lexicon has this kind of definition for agape, is because one of the sort of shorthand ways I was taught what agape was was about 
was it was some kind of disinterested love. Like God was sort of, he was giving his love as a, as a benevolent monarch, but he didn't really have to like you. He didn't really have to have affection for you. Now, you guys know me enough to know that I'm a long way from believing that, but that is how it was taught when I was in Bible school. And they were trying to make the distinction that if I'm attracted to Vicky, well, that would be like Eros love. Or if I'm attracted to my family members, that would be like phileo love, friendship love, or if, uh, you know, we, we, we do some stuff together, uh, play ball together. If I was to ever play hockey, God forbid, Dave and I would have that kind of hockey love going on. That would be like phileo type love. There's nothing wrong with that, but in a language that only has one word for love and all these different concepts, some of the, the theologians, especially in that more austere time leading up to the Reformation, they felt it was safer to keep emotions out of it. So it's a non-emotional love. It's a love that God makes by choice to do good for you. But the scripture says, you love, or we love, because he first loved us. And that's why the church is full of non-emotional, unconnected love. It's because we're loving like we think God loves, or like we've been told God loves. But this is what I love about this one. So just let those, let those, that definition, those two definitions wash over you. The quality of warm regard for an interest in another. Now, go back to the definition of feeling a secure attachment in a group of people and gaining a sense of belonging in that and possibly even having that experience of that sort of visceral joy when you walk in that room full of people that, that, they have a warm regard and an interest in you. They esteem you. They have affection for you. They regard you. They love you. And then you see that delight in their eyes. Now you've got a relational thing going, right? you got something happening to you, something that keeps the cold away, that keeps the dark away, that it, it, it's real, it's living, and it's relational. And so I think that's super, super powerful. Uh, the quality of a warm regard for it. And that's what I believe, that's, that's how I think agape should be understood, not in a cold, impersonal way. Uh, but when you think about it, if, if you believe that God's sort of obligated to love everybody, but at the same time, he is angry, frustrated, hate toward people who haven't made this choice or that choice or all that kind of stuff, you got to figure out some place to put that love. And so you got to redefine it down so it works in a schizophrenic situation like that or a sociopathic situation. And I don't think God is a sociopath. <laughs> I think he's the opposite of that. Here's another one, Abbott Smith. To love, and, and he, they captured this same reality here, to feel and exhibit esteem and goodwill to a person. And then here again, think, think how this could affect the countenance of a face in the joy. If I look at Adam and I prize and delight in him, which I do, uh, and think about how, how people that you know feel that way about you. You know, if you got kids that love you, if you got parents that love you, if you got friends that love you, if you got spouses that love you, if you got hopefully you got church people that love you. That's what this is talking about to delight in. And that's why I like to 
use when we did that little gospel rewrite thing, I like to use words like affection and delight. Delight especially. I, uh, Ronnie pointed out I, I use the word delight a lot when I talk about God's love for us. I don't think it's a bad representation. I think God does take delight in us. And love is a very vague word in our culture. So we'll get to a little exercise in just a minute to work on that. Um, anyway, it makes sense. Keep that in mind. We can go back and revisit it in any minute here. So here are some scriptures that have to do with this. Now this one I put in there because of the scope. How big is this deal about love in community? Well, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, uh, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Uh, and this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This doesn't take anything away from the significance of the Decalogue. It doesn't take anything away from the significance of the law and prophets. It just says that everything that they seek, everything they ask, love fulfills. Another place Jesus said love is the fulfillment of the law. There's no law against love because love fulfills the heart of God. If you cherish, if you delight in the best for someone, even if that person doesn't know it themselves, even if they're antagonistic toward you, this kind of love is better than trying to come up with an exception to a law so that you can tolerate a person. You know? Here's another one. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. All right, so let's just stop there for a second. How important is it to love and to know love? John is probably the most relational writer, the most relational gospel writer for sure. He's the disciple known as the one Jesus loved. He writes about love all the time in his letters in here. And, and then he writes the book of Revelation. I don't really fully understand that. <laughs> oh, it's fun though. Um, but he says that the evidence of being born of God is that you love. He says that if you love, you know God. Now this goes right back to what Michael, what's his name, the pastor here, was looking for. I want a discipleship program where people change. Well, people change when they get to know God, when they know they're known by God. So that's, that's kind of what explains this stuff. And, and then look, the one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That's not an accusation. That's not a condemning statement. That's like, here, my friend, is a measuring stick. If you can't love, you don't know God. Because to know God is to be known by God and to know you're known by God. And we love because he first loved us. So, you know, anyway, uh, we'll keep going. Uh, by this love, the love of God was manifest in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now, we've all known that verse. We've all read that verse. One thing that they suggested was sometimes you can shake the cobwebs off a verse or off a word by substituting it with the other words. So, on page 90 here, it, it reads like this. It says, a helpful exercise to revive this tired word, meaning love, is to replace love with a concept of attachment as we read these familiar scriptures. Now, keep in mind that what has said is it's not just a Hebrew word for love. As a matter of fact, it's not even a Hebrew word for love. There's another word that most times translate love. It's a Hebrew, it's the Hebrew expression that is very deep and very broad and somewhat difficult to pin down. It's about a committed love. It's about a relational love. It's about everlasting love, love everlasting. It's about all the things that love act like, like kindness and generosity and patience. And then, of course, so is agape, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Paul had to go through a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians to make sure that this word agape got filled out, and it got filled out along the very things that Hased was. Patience, kindness, no record of wrong, looking for the needs of others over your own, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, that's what not just love produces, that's what an attachment produces, a commitment to people, letting someone in your heart and mind, being in their heart and mind, getting to know them, having joy over them. So here's what they say. A helpful exercise to revive this tired word is to replace love with the concept of attachment as we read in these familiar script as we read these familiar scriptures. For example, we look at 1 John 4:11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We also ought to love one another. We can awaken our sense of, of the, the breadth of this definition of love by replacing love with the idea of a family bond. A paraphrase might be, Dear friends, since God has joyfully attached himself so firmly to us, we also ought to attach ourselves to each other as family members. Not bad, huh? So we could, we could do that on some of these others. Uh, beloved, let us attach ourselves closely, committedly to one another. Because attaching yourselves together is from God. I mean, that's fun. That's how the body gets built. That's why there is such a thing as the body of Christ. The one who does not attach himself to others readily, doesn't know God because God attaches himself to you. The one who does not... By this, the attachment of God was manifest to it, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. John chapter 3 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But that word means almost nothing to almost everybody I talk to. Because they've got love classified over here as a special 
caste that grows when we get together and agree and everything. And so the idea of God loving before anybody agreed, before anybody accepted, there's no place to put it in their heads or in their theology. But if God in some way in this act of incarnation, if you can conceive of him attaching himself to people, to humanity, well, that is exactly what he did. That is the incarnation. That's why I love that one passage in Luke in, in, in the Christmas story where the angels say, uh, uh, I bring you great tidings, uh, good tidings of great joy, great tidings of good joy, great, uh, good tidings of great joy. For unto us, you know, uh, that, I'm acting like President Biden now, sorry. Uh, it gets to the end. <laughs> you know what it says. No, it, <laughs> it gets to the end. <laughs> that was bad. It gets to the end. And it says, the angel says, for men with whom he is well pleased. He has already attached. That's what the incarnation is. It is God attaching himself to an alienated humanity. So, uh, and then we saw 11 already. Oh, and this is love. Not that we love God. Not that we first attached ourselves to Him. That's the whole thing about religion. How do I attach myself to God? That's the wrong way to think about it. Anyway, see what I'm saying? So that, that I thought was kind of cool. Uh, read that. Oop. I'm going to talk to you about your brain. Isn't that cool? All right, so here we go. This is a quote. Uh, from Wilder, our primary identity and the apex of the neurological control structure of the brain is a relational one. Now, I don't know this guy's credentials and I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm pretty sure that's the truth. That, that the way our brain functions, it functions to connect us with other people. Otherwise, there wouldn't be all these things like families, cities, governments, communities, all kinds of stuff. We thrive on connection, right? The prefrontal cortex, okay, so this is the frontal lobe, okay? And then there's an occipital lobe and a bunch of other stuff, but I, I don't even know that. I just know the words. So anyway, but I do know that's the frontal lobe. So that illustrated part there. The prefrontal cortex grows to become about one-sixth of the brain. Now you can see from that illustration, that's a lot more than one-sixth. That's like a third or something along those lines. So in a minute, I'm going to show you where the prefrontal cortex is. It's down to, uh, in that illustration, it's to the front part, and it's kind of here, behind your eyes. And it's interesting because it, it touches uh, all three different areas, the surface, the deep part, in near where the stem connects to the brain, and then the main part. But anyway, the prefrontal cortex grows to become about one-sixth of the brain and is configured with neurological circuits representing three faces engaged with one another. Now, I don't fully understand the mechanics of that, but it's pretty fascinating. Infant brains develop identity through joyful interactions, usually with their mother and father. Now, that makes perfect sense, right? 
the joyful faces of the parents are combined with the baby's growing sense of self to form a triad of joyful interaction. And in this ideal environment, if everything goes well, joy becomes the baby's strength, and this lays a foundation for lifelong joyful identity. So the uh, when, when Wilder uh, first met with Michael and his wife, Claudia, I think is her name, uh, let's see if I can find that. Oh, where'd it go? Should have written it down. Oh, yeah, here we go. So when, when Jim explained this to this, uh, his comment was, boy, there's a lot to unpack. But when Claudia and I first heard about the Brain's Identity Center, this prefrontal cortex, we were blown away. And we had visited the Wilders one afternoon when he explained the three faces of our prefrontal cortex. These three viewpoints form one single identity as they work together. My wife exclaimed, three faces sounds familiar. Did God design our brains based on the, on the pattern of the Trinity? And we're not sure whether the theologians would agree, but it makes us wonder. And I don't know if theologians would agree either, but what does it mean to be made in the image of God? You know, we've struggled for some pretty lame definitions of that. Well, we're a spirit, and we're a body, and we're, you know. Okay, all that's probably cool. But what about the, the very basis of our identity? The Father and I are one. That's what Jesus said. The Spirit is called the Spirit of the Father. It's also called the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Son. Uh, there's, there's union, there's, there's oneness. And so it doesn't, wouldn't surprise me in the least. So anyway, look at what goes on here. So this area in the very, very front of the brain, this one's flipped around backwards, of course, but that big chunk in the front is the prefrontal cortex or is the frontal lobe, but the prefrontal cortex is right here. And these are the things that, you know, it's that area right there. So these are the things that happen in there. All those things, but look at, look at the ones I highlighted yellow. Personality, self-awareness, behavior, and emotions. What is it that constitutes who you are in a group of people, if not those things? What is it that constitutes how you're thought about, how your character reacts. Those things happen right in that part of your brain. I thought that's pretty fascinating. And that's one reason why it's, it's not a fully left brain function. It's not something you can just decide. I'm going to be more loving. I'm going to be. That's, I mean, a lot of times we, we're asked to do that in a discipleship kind of way, but there has to be this real stuff. Now, it also works this way. You might not choose to be more loving, but if you get loved on enough, you will. You might not choose to have emotional control, but if you're around a bunch of people that have emotional control and have that kind of patience with you, you'll change. And I think it's really, I think this is one of the biggest things we have to offer the world is, you know, we need to let them know that, that love is real and that community is real and that acceptance is real. And this is the thing that makes... So I think the one thing that stands in the way and is the most damaging to this reality is conditionality. 
in the church, we have made the love of God and we've unfortunately made our love because we always make our stuff what his, what we think his stuff is, right? So we've made his love conditional. And have any of you had a relationship with somebody where the love was conditional? It's a, it's a job. It's painful. God's love is not conditional. And some of the major doctrines that we've looked at in recent times, like uh, eternal conscious torment, there's no way around, if you, if, if you want to ascribe to that as it's taught, you have to let God's love be conditional. Or you have to let God's love be detached. He, he could be utterly, eternally brokenhearted, but he's not connected. This is, this is really an important thing. So, uh, I think those things are pretty cool. Then I ran across this site, which was just a science site. The prefrontal cortex, remember that's the little one that, that uh, this stuff is kind of, is also called the frontal granular cortex and the frontal association cortex. Now, I'll be completely honest with you, I didn't dig any deeper in this, and this wasn't a uh, religious or a spiritual thing, it was just a science site trying to find, you know, some detailed images of this thing. But I thought that last thing was amazing. It is the frontal association cortex. Even the scientific name for these three chunks of the frontal lobe are called the association cortex. I think that's fun. Yeah, come on we had um, a woman in our church who had this part of her brain damaged. Uh And so she would just say spontaneously things that were just like kind of out there, Uh you know, because that part of your brain actually is the thing that tells you that you probably shouldn't say that. Right. Because people might be offended or restrained or something like that. It's something that develops as we get older. Children don't have it developed. So they'll say, you know, like, gee, you look really fat in that dress, you know, because <laughs> they're just making observation, right? Uh-huh. And so, um, but anyway, uh, when you were talking about the 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 eyes of the baby, um, I have a five-month-old grandson, and um, I took this picture of him, and this just, to me, like, and I'll show it to you. Guys. Yeah, that's fine. You guys can look at that. His eyes... Like when he sees a person that's in his circle, it's just like all of a sudden his whole face changes. Mm-hmm. And when you see that in a child, you realize like that's what God meant for There's us. There's no premeditation there. That's not a cultural reaction. That's how we're built. It's not at five months old, oh, this person's going to give me something, or it's I'm excited to see you. Yeah. You're yeah. one of my people. Yeah, you know, and so I just think what a joy that is when you get that kind of a love from a person, mm-hmm. you know, and children do it so naturally, you know. That brings up another point. You stay there and you may come by this. Uh, you guys know that we've we've begun to try to take really seriously. Jesus said, "Unless you turn as become uh, and are converted and become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom." And that the actual fruit of the new birth is to be a child, right? So that's what it means to be born again, is to come be, be like a child again. Mm-hmm. I think that is the mechanism of the gospel 
to get us back in that place where everything is not a cultural calculation. And these guys would probably say on the left side, you know, it's, it's the honest reaction to the delight that, that we're built to receive. Well, and the other, the other comment that I thought um, is just how, as we grow, we're domesticated. I know that's kind of like a, like a harsh word, but I feel like we're domesticated to behave a certain way, you know, through time when you see a child, the way they respond, the way they love, mm -hmm. the way they trust, you know, that gets kind of worked out of us. Yeah, it does. And in, in the bigger context of church, it's also the same way. You're 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 taught how to behave, or else you won't get the love. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so I just thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. And then as you're thinking that, it makes me think about how how much evil momentum, antisocial momentum, selfish momentum could be nipped in the bud if it was confronted with that childlike reaction, the honest like, oh, why are you doing that? You know, as opposed to hiding behind it and not wanting to offend or being afraid or something along those lines. Anyway, I think there's a path back to being like this and to be a, a community like this. Anyway, kind of the introduction to that. Um, I wanted to put that up again because I thought it was fun. <laughs> I like that message version. So what I would like to do is, before we uh, get a little out here and do worship, I'd like to get in some small groups and just talk about this a little bit. See, what, 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 do, you, what do you think? I mean, how, how do we go about doing that? Um, is there anything about it that is intimidating or unrealistic or anything like that? So get in groups of three or four. And then I'm going to pop back and chat with you guys just a little bit on Zoom and then turn that over to you. But let's spend a few minutes doing that. I'll go let Laurel know that we're going to be doing this for a bit and uh, give it a shot. See, see what the Lord, see what the Lord has to say.